0: for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, the Chicago Blackhawks are the lucky winners of the Connor Bedard sweepstakes. The BC Phenom is considered a generational hockey talent after lighting up the Western Hockey League and the World Junior Championships of late. So what will his move to the Windy City mean for the team, the league, and hockey in general? A Canadian investor with a long track record of pulling brands such as Toys R Us, Sunrise Records, and HMV in the U.K., out of the dumps is now setting his sights on several of the former bed bath and beyond locations in canada doug putman will open a new homewares venture called rooms and spaces we find out what he has in mind and why he still sees big promise in traditional retail but first canada has moved to expel a chinese diplomat the center of allegations that beijing was looking to intimidate the family of conservative mp michael chong in hong kong over his moves to call attention to the treatment of China's Uyghur Muslim minority. Zhao Wei has been declared persona non grata by this country and has five days to leave. Is it too little too late by the federal government? What message does it send to Beijing and how will they respond? Let's start in Alberta. Again, the weather has brought some relief in that fight against dozens of wildfires in the province. Uh, But there are still 98 active fires burning across the province at last count and some 29,000 people still out of their homes. Christy Tucker is a spokesperson for Alberta Wildfire. She says firefighters have had a slight reprieve.
1: This is giving firefighters a helping hand, uh, causing less active wildfire, allowing them to work on parts of fires they hadn't been able to access before. It's a much-needed chance to make progress on some of these powerful, challenging wildfires. But we're not out of the woods yet.
0: We've been hearing that uh, areas such as Drayton Valley, which we were talking about on Friday night, uh, the evacuations remain in place there. The fire chief there, uh, emotional today, talking about how evacuees really want to go home but can't just yet. The situation is still too dangerous. Alberta's premier, Daniel Smith, of course, there's an election going on, uh, but in this state of emergency, she's acting as premier. Uh, she spoke with the prime minister by phone this morning. Here's what she had to say.
2: During our call, Prime Minister Trudeau confirmed that the military will be sent to assist. If necessary, we will continue to keep communication channels open with the federal government as we respond to this unprecedented situation.
0: Daniel Smith there. Wildfire evacuees, part of that announcement this morning, wildfire evacuees will be offered one-time financial assistance from the Alberta government for those displaced for at least seven consecutive days.
1: Every adult who's been evacuated and displaced for seven consecutive days will receive $1,250,
2: along with an additional $500 for each dependent child under age 18. This means that an evacuated family of four will receive $3,500 to help get through these dark days.
0: Danielle Smith there. Well, one of the area's worst hit, of course, and we talked about this on Thursday when that out-of-control wildfire In Fox Lake, that area in Northern Alberta, uh, Chief Conroy Supegam says, Thousands of people were forced from their home. Thirty seven hundred in all. Uh, they're still out. Eighty five homes at last count have been destroyed, as well as the RCMP station, a water plant, other properties in the community uh, that make up Fox Lake, which is Fox Lake, uh, John Dor Prairie, and Garden River. Again, according to the chief there of the Little Red River Cree Nation, um, he joins me now, Chief Conroy Supegam. Uh, again, chief of the Little River, the Little Red River rather Cree Nation. Uh, chief, thank you so much for your time tonight. What a difficult weekend and. Beginning of this week, it's already been, I know.
3: Yeah, it's been uh, air-raising, to say the least.
0: What is the situation now? Last, uh, when, on Friday, of course, we were talking about this on the show, a lot of the community members that ended, ended up in High River. Uh, where is everyone now, and what's the situation in the community?
3: Uh, we're all we're all pretty anxious. Uh, we're sitting on the end of our seats, where all of a sudden I know there's oilers games and orders playoffs taking place, but it seems like everybody's looking at the weather forecast.
0: Yeah. Tell me a bit about the evacuation, because I think all eyes, I mean, as, as other fires sprouted up on Friday, eyes started to shift everywhere, but certainly all eyes on your community on Thursday night. Uh, things moved really quickly. It's sort of what we've been seeing everywhere.
3: Yeah, like uh, in terms of the weather conditions at, at the time, back in uh, May 3rd, um, even, even though at the time the fire was relatively small, but in terms of the wind direction and, you know, and thankfully with the forecasting from the forestry side of things, from the province side, it kind of gave us an indication that uh, this might be a bigger problem than, than expected. So myself and council decided to call the evac on on May third at 4:30 p.m. and and it took us almost seventy-two hours to get our all of our community members out. The last one, last ones were six individuals. Uh, those ones were were fully vacated there at three twenty-one p.m. on May fifth. Well, wow.
0: there are there are, I know of just having watched the videos of it that you posted. Uh, the logistics of it were very difficult. They're having to use a barge, right, to get across the river.
3: Uh, we had to use barges, boats, canoes um what have you anything that floated we use for the simple fact we don't necessarily have the infrastructure infrastructure leading up to our you know one of their biggest uh northern communities in uh was fox lake
0: yeah 3700 right more or less
3: yep that's the current count
0: where is everybody Tonight again on Friday we saw that a lot of people had been had been gone to High River, but that um, you know there was certainly some accommodation there. But has it been enough? Is that where everyone is this evening, or almost everyone?
3: Uh, Our two primary uh, evacuation centers actually, in our two other remaining communities, Uh, Little River Recreation is actually composed of three communities. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one is Garden River, and obviously the most affected one right now is. Is Fox Lake, and the third one is John Door. So, both are Gardner and John Door, two primary evac- ev- evacuation centers. And then we have secondary ones, which is in Fort Vermilion, from what I understand. Um, right, high level, look Le high level, I water, think. Again. Yeah, in Peliperry. Is,
0: is are you getting the sort of, you know, it's hard when people are on the move. Everyone goes out quickly. Uh, have, have people? Are you getting what you need for those people who've been displaced?
3: Uh, we're we're doing as much as we can, and thankfully, you know, I have a a lot of our community members stepped up, and kudos to them for for you know a lot of sleepless nights. But they're really putting pulling everything together, and some of the local communities and surrounding re- regions are really stepping up and uh, assisting my people.
0: We were seeing some reports of of how many what we know has been has been destroyed. Um, do you have any more information on on where that stands from within the community?
3: Uh, when we when we ground truth last night, that was basically what we've seen on the ground, and uh, hopefully as as soon as we can have some daylight operations in there. And I guess one of one of our biggest concerns is before we bring in. Bring in people to to assess the damage is, is is the noxious fumes taking place from all these burnt homes, but also a lot of the buildings. There's also all the power and uh, and power lines, you know, scattered all throughout our community.
0: Yeah, I, I was reading, of course, that um, you know people obviously want to go home to see what's what's there and 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 what is it and figure out what next, but but it's just not that's just not
3: possible yet. Uh, n- not at this point, but, you know, we're hopeful. Um, like I said, we we do have some really keen ground personnel working on this fire, and we do have those frontline resources working working uh, during a daytime o- operation. So, you know, fingers crossed we can bring in some uh, personnel to take care of those um, power lines and possibly within the next couple of days have some escorts for our community members to get a few things, get their belongings at a a specified time and for them to come come back across so fall goes well. And if the weather, I'm hoping the weather changes to cloudy and uh, more rain to forecast, but unfortunately uh, that's not looking like that. So that's the plan anyways is trying to get as much done as we can all within, within Fox Lake. Yeah.
0: What was the weather situation over the weekend and into today? Because we saw some rain in some places, but uh, I'm not sure how far that extended.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, you know, we we got some reprieve from yesterday's little bit of rain, but according to the five day forecast and with our spot there, it's uh, it's not looking too pretty the next couple days.
0: We're in northern Alberta tonight, taking a look at the wildfires that have been, you know, there's been a lot of wildfire activity over the weekend, a little bit of reprieve today. There's been more firefighters arriving from other parts of the country, including B.C. Uh, we're speaking with Chief Conroy uh, Sue Apegum, who is the chief of the Little Red River Cree Nation. Now, that's made up of three Woodland Cree communities, Fox Lake, Garden River and John Dor Prairie. Uh, Fox Lake, of course, was the area uh, that has been worst hit by these fires. About 3,700 people evacuated. Uh, dozens of homes have been destroyed destroyed. destroyed. We know the RCMP station, I believe, and others. Um, Chief, you've pointed out that this is one of those situations where it has laid bare a bigger problem, which is the lack of infrastructure in the community, like paved roads or a paved highway, hydrants, things that you might need. Uh, That'll certainly be a consideration, I imagine, when you start to look at what comes next for for Fox Lake. Yeah, so
3: I've been on a on a horn less as much as I can uh in between my little power depths as uh this fire is always keeping me on my toes and but yeah that's that's one of the things I wish we had in all our communities actually is I think having some that proper water infrastructure in place such as fire hydrants and uh all throughout the communities making sure that each home, you know, within a specified meter uh where that, you yeah. Know, Water code, whatever code that may be, in terms of a lot of these homes that are outside of our uh, communities, uh, they're, they're very fortunate to have that fire hydrant for us. Right. Unfortunately, cannot say the same.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is about uh, six hundred mile kilometers rather north of Edmonton, and and uh, when that fire, I guess when the when you're threatened by a fire like that, there's not much that can be done to protect the community, right? Especially in a situation such as this one, where it was moving quite quickly and. Um, and and uh, and and unpredictably.
3: Yeah, and unfortunately, in our case, um, the only thing we could really rely on is hoping the wind shifting was right. basically our our only hope and prayer for that. But as soon as the wind shifted towards the community, um, there was no there was nothing we could do, and and that's one of the biggest reasons why we had to call the evacuation order a little sooner than most communities because we knew it was going to take at least minimum 40 hours. In this case, it took more than 72 hours to get everybody evacuated.
0: Yeah. I I mean, when you think about 72 hours to evacuate a community under threat, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's just not safe. Right. I mean, and and that's because there is no road, right. There is no road that you can at least viable road that you can, that everyone can use to get out.
3: Yeah. And unfortunately that's something we had to really weigh in. Um, it's uh, for the simple fact uh, that Highway East, just north of a uh, connecting highway of Highway 88 and 58, and we have a population of nearly what, 7,000 people, uh, I believe, and I could be wrong on this stat. But we're the only um, large communities without paved roads or bridges into our one of our largest largest community of, that composes a little of a nation. Um, a bridge would have, would have been nice and uh, I think we've been able to evac everybody within a short few hours versus days.
0: When you look at what comes ahead, I guess there's the next 48 hours or so, and then there is what comes next. And and it seems like it's, I mean, it's hard to tell now, but it seems like it's going to be a a, a tough road ahead. A lot has been lost and we don't quite know exactly how much yet. And you're going to need some help,
4: right?
3: Yeah. Uh, I'm not... Like I'm not going to code it. It's going to be a, it's going to be one hell of a journey, journey, and it's going to be a tough journey for for families going back to a home. And it's going to be a tougher journey for for families that going back to new home. And, and that's one of our first priorities: making sure that we you know rebuild uh, for for these kids, for these for these little ones, for these young families, for them to. Have a home before winter. Uh, that's what we're, we're we're hoping to. And uh, I don't necessarily have a crystal ball in terms of how how it's going to look like in the next couple of days. But I'm hoping we can at least start the process of, of you know a lot of our community members to have some escorted services for them to look at and assess the damage. But at this point in time, well, we're we're cognizant about the noxious fumes coming from these burnt buildings and making sure that the uh, you know the surroundings are safe for them to you know tour and grab whatever belonging belongings are are left
0: right and as you mentioned it's still that the danger hasn't passed yet either right it's still dry um, and and presumably there's still some fire
3: activity yeah there's there's some hot spots all throughout the all throughout the community and the surrounding community like uh, the Pascoa fire um, has grown significantly but uh, we're hoping to get some GPS coordinates from the SRD guys to give us a a better picture of how this may look like and how it may play out. Uh, But thankfully, we, you know, as as First Nations historically, we've always fought fires. That's where a lot of our experience comes into play for, for us to actually make somewhat of a prediction in terms of how this may play out in the next couple of days.
0: Yeah, and the evacuation. I mean, uh, everyone is safe, right? For the so that 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 in of itself is 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 both miraculous and a success. I, I would say from from afar, it's easy to say from where I'm sitting. But yes,
3: yeah. Uh, let me tell you, um, I, I, w- I would say I was tired, but even that, I don't have time for. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Chief Sopegam, thank you so much for your time tonight. My my best wishes to all community members and 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 uh, with with everything that lies ahead as well.
3: Yeah, and for the rest of Alberta, uh, we wish you well as well, and let's get this two together.
0: Some big diplomatic news out of uh, Ottawa today. Canada is, in fact, going to kick out a Chinese diplomat uh, who's based in Toronto after he was allegedly involved in a plot to threaten Conservative MP Michael Chong's family who were in Hong Kong. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie made the announcement today saying Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei has been declared persona non grata, which in diplomatic terms essentially is about as severe as it gets. As the Global Mail first reported last week, uh, Zhao was allegedly part of efforts by the Chinese government to target uh, Michael Chong and his family after his work in spearheading a parliamentary motion that declared Beijing's treatment of the Uyghur Muslim minority in the western part of China, Xinjiang, uh, to constitute genocide. Now, Robert Oliphant is the parliamentary secretary to Melanesia Lee. He says this is a warning to other diplomats who want to interfere in our democracy.
4: Our government has been clear we will not tolerate any
5: form of foreign interference in our internal affairs. The Minister of Foreign Affairs has taken this decision carefully after considering all factors. Diplomats have been
4: warned.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are many out there who think perhaps this is ha- should have happened a little earlier, but this was uh, the government was under a lot of pressure to do this. Uh, Jawe now has five days to leave the country. Now, Michael Chong, for his part, says the diplomat should have been expelled back in 2021 when Canada's spy agency first learned of the possible threat against his family.
4: This crossing the line of diplomacy into foreign interference threat activities is utterly unacceptable here on Canadian soil the fact that a member of parliament and their family was being targeted by the PRC here in Canada for the government to have taken action on this. This should have happened years ago.
0: Now, um, that was Michael Chong, by the way, reacting to news that the Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei would be expelled from the country. We haven't heard from China. I'll check again. Last I looked, we hadn't heard from China on this just yet. They, uh, When their ambassador was called in last week by uh, the foreign affairs minister, they reacted uh, harshly, uh, essentially accusing, saying they have nothing to do with this. And Canada was overreacting. Again, they've denied meddling in Canadian affairs. Joining me, joining me now is Gordon Holden. He's director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, a frequent guest. Gordon, thank you. Welcome back. Thank you so much. This, uh, I guess the obvious question, was this the right move
6: done at the right time? I think it was the right move. Once it was identified and then eventually identified by a leak through the Globe and Mail and then eventually confirmed by the Prime Minister that this indeed had happened, or at least can intelligence services believe it to have happened? And I, I... tend to believe them, then I think it was inevitable that something had to be done. The right time, I'm not sure I buy that. Uh, For one thing, I think it's best if governments, including ours, make these decisions on the basis of their highly classified information um, without waiting for it to leak. I'm not a big fan of leaking of secret documents. Um, Ideally, this would have been done when it came to light, carefully considered uh, by the Prime Minister's office, by Minister's and action could have been taken, um, it has a greater effect, obviously, if you find out something fairly soon, rather than it goes on and on, or at least it goes, the other side may think it's undetected. So um, the right action, I would tend to say yes. Uh, the right timing, I would say too late.
0: Yeah. I mean, in diplomatic terms here, just so our listeners understand, uh, this is this is, at least as far as you know, sort of the niceties of diplomacy. This is about as severe as it gets.
6: That's true. And persona non grata, the technical diplomatic term, literally means unwelcome person, right. and it means you must leave. And very often that means within forty-eight hours, twenty-four hours. Short-term time frame might be a little bit longer, and it has a greatly disruptive effect on the person. It may also mean it probably also means that other allied western nations won't accept you in the future either so it means if you're a relatively junior officer like this consular officer in Toronto Johnway you're not going to be able to be cross posted to to um uh, Los Angeles and you're not going to be um, accepted in London so it has some real career implications on the other hand um diplomatic officers and usually consular officers are immune from prosecution and so they you could argue that yes it's disruptive Uh, But on the other hand, they don't have to face the music of a Canadian court. Right. Because the allegations, I
0: mean, let's be honest, the allegations, I mean, and they are allegations, but the allegations here are pretty severe. Uh, You know, this was sort of... uh, the, the allegation being that Zhao Wei was involved essentially in a discussion whereby the, the idea of, of sort of intimidating uh, Michael Chong, the MP's family, who are back in Hong Kong, a family that he doesn't, members that he doesn't have contact with precisely for this reason. Uh, I mean, that, that, that is, and we know this happens. This is a story that happens across the diaspora in this country. Uh, but to target a sitting MP for their political activities on the House of, on the floor of the House of Commons is, is beyond the pale.
6: It's beyond the pale to do it to any Canadian citizen, I would submit. Um, Chinese intelligence services are not known for their gentleness or their deep respect for democratic principles, and this has been going on for a very long time. They've been in some ways active even before relations were established in 1970. But I would agree, uh, an MP makes it worse, and it's not even any MP. Michael Chung is the foreign affairs critic for official opposition, a senior player in the Canadian Political scene. And so, for those reasons, combination of those reasons, it is uh, utterly unacceptable to be sure. And, and again, as you point out, this isn't the first time. Uh, and, it, and other Canadian citizens of Chinese heritage in the diaspora are also potentially exposed to this sort of pressure.
4: I guess we're
0: still trying to figure out what happened to this um to this twenty twenty one ceases report where exactly it wound up and why uh m p Chong was not told about it. I mean he only found out when the global Mail called him about ten days ago for reaction to this i mean it seems um you know I asked uh, the public safety minister Marco Mendicino, a number of times last week what what happened to the report? where was it, and we have these conflicting stories now about who was supposed to tell who, and uh, I guess we're no closer to figuring out exactly where this report went and, and who was in charge or who should have uh, been warning Michael Chong that this was, this was happening.
6: Well, I served 32 years in 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 what is now Global Affairs Canada, right. abroad in, in, in Ottawa, and well, we have several thousand people who work in our intelligence services. They produce a torrent of information and not make excuses. I'm sort no. of pointing out that the system that should winnow the, the wheat from the chaff that ought to be looking for not just the routine, but the really important, broke down. And the relatively important, which this certainly was, or the very important, um, may have worked its way up, but it didn't, it appears, um, come to the eyes of the Prime Minister. Um, That'll be sorted out, I presume, if there's an inquiry. But there's something wrong when something can go on for two years and it only comes to light when there's a leak. And again, I don't like leaks. There shouldn't be leaks. Uh, but it's hard to complain too much when a real problem has been exposed. It's just not the best way to do things. I don't think U.S. government wants their polls to be set by leaks out of the CIA. They want to have that information, act upon it, while it still remains behind closed doors, and that's the way it ought to work. But something clearly is systematically wrong with our intelligence handling of information, and probably not just China, perhaps even other places.
0: What I was looking to see, because, of course, uh, I've I've sat through these Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, press conferences in Beijing. Uh, Wang Wenbin is the spokesperson. I don't see any comment yet about Canada. There is an article on the Global Times, which is the uh, state-run English language paper, out about some other stuff. He's clearly been speaking today. Uh, But I haven't seen anything yet about Canada. What's going to happen, do you think? Because I know that was part of the consideration on Canada's part here. What would the retaliation look like? And you know what this looks like from the inside. What do you expect to see from Beijing on this one?
6: And you've got your own direct experience out of Beijing as well, as you've reminded us. Mm-hmm. And and that's very helpful, I think, in understanding what's going on. I think we have to keep in mind that it's still relatively early. It's like mid-morning in Beijing. It's a pretty cautious system. They will have the, in the process of decision-making. You, I mean, you may get first the blast out of the... Um, uh, foreign ministry and out of the media. Global Times is not just an English-language paper, but it's a hard-nosed nationalist paper. Um, Indeed. But what will be interesting to see is what were the specific acts taken. Myself, I would not be surprised, based in part on past experience, to see um, a tit-for-tat. In other words, some poor Canadian um, diplomat or consular officer uh, at a mission Given their papers, their walking papers, um, that would be a one for one. It could be, it could be worse than that. But I would be amazed and surprised if the Chinese, at a minimum, particularly if you look at the, the the color of their reaction so far, out of the embassy today and out of past statements out of the foreign ministry, I'd be astounded if there wasn't a not just a, a verbal riposte, but an actual uh, action taken against a Canadian official.
0: Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta is with us this half hour. We're talking about the expulsion of Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei. He uh, works out of the Chinese consulate in Toronto. He's the name uh, at the center of allegations that China was looking to intimidate the family of Conservative MP and foreign affairs critic Michael Chong uh, a few years ago, back in 2021, Uh, the decision was made today. Uh, Gordon, when you look at the implications of this for the Trudeau government, because obviously one of the reasons it took them so long to do this is they were trying very carefully to weigh what the blowback might be on this. And, uh, you know, China Canada relations have been in a bad place now for quite a few years since obviously the arrest of uh, Meng Wanzhou and then the uh, arrests of the two Michaels in China. I mean, essentially the hostage taking of the two Michaels in China. Uh, this doesn't, I mean, this this is not going to improve matters at all. But at, at some point, it felt like Canada had to do something. It couldn't simply, the status quo wasn't working for
6: Canada or the Canadian public for that matter. I would agree that something had to be done. Uh, the relationship has. Is- At its lowest ebb since I've been working on the relationship, which really started in 1981, Uh, Tiananmen was a low point. But that was the whole West mad at China. This is Canada with a more uh, troubled relationship with China than almost any one of our Western partners. The United States' relationship with China is more important. But they still had, for example, presence. C um, and and Biden meeting in Bali, et cetera. We've mm-hmm. been without positive bilateral meetings for years now. I, I had not seen anything like it. And this won't help. Quite frankly, just when I think things couldn't get any worse, they get worse.
0: What could the repercussions be? I mean, we saw Australia get heavily targeted about four or five years ago when Australia came out quite... Uh... Uh, you know, quite forcefully to try and push back against some of these allegations of foreign interference in their system. Um, and, and certainly Beijing looked to make an example of them. That's been repaired a little bit uh, of time. You know, money talks sometimes in this relationship. But what do you expect then in the near term between between Canada and China? I, I mean, I'm thinking we could see economic implications out of this as well. I mean, China's not not unwilling to use other levers other than diplomatic ones, clearly.
6: I think for sure, I'd be amazed if they don't use a diplomatic lever, that is a counterpart expulsion. Um, if they want to just match, I mean, I'm not saying are equivalent because the person mm-hmm. they will expel will not have been doing anything equivalent to Zhao Wei. So I'm not saying that they're the same, but the balance will be there perhaps for China. If they go beyond that, more than one person, or if they extend it into other areas, um, that would be more serious. The economic one, uh, they've basically laid off. I know that canola was a target for a time, Mm -hmm. although ironically, our exports of canola through other countries to China never really disappeared. Yeah, they went up. (laughs) They went went up. up. I mean, money talks, right? Yeah, Money talks, and there's a great amount of cynicism here as well. Um, Trade usually benefits both countries. Um, The things that we sell to China, they want. They can get them other places, but they want them from us as well. Uh, the diplomatic thing is not nearly as costly to them. So I think it's going to be a lot of noise, a lot of complaining, strong language, no visits, that is, at high level, and an expulsion. We'll have to see where they go beyond that. But they, they run a three-to-one trade surplus compared to what we export to them. And um, cutting back trade ties hurts them as much as it hurts us and, and probably more.
0: Would you be concerned for Canadians in China right now? I mean, there are many expats. There are fewer, certainly fewer than when I was there. But but would you be at all concerned for
6: Canadians doing business in China right now? I'm always concerned. I myself came back just um, in April right. um, from China. Um, I try to calculate these things very carefully. One thing that reassures me partially is that I don't think that the two Michaels worked out particularly well for them. Um, mm-hmm. They arrested the two Michaels, as you know, more or less as a hostage, diplomatic hostages, and um, that was in, if I recall, in December of 2018. Um, they they were there for almost three years, um, but what, what sometimes it's, I think a bit like uh, the last comment about the shoe that didn't drop. What you didn't mm-hmm. see was ongoing arrest of We've got three hundred, over three hundred thousand. Canadians in the the people's province of China, mostly in Hong Kong, uh, they could take 100 hostages at any time. They could take 10,000. But I think it's more the damage to them would be greater. I I think that the hanging tough at least showed them that it wouldn't get them what they wanted. So for that reason, I think that it's unlikely that they'll turn to that tool. Um, Of course, if there's someone who is foolish enough to break Chinese law, and actually break Chinese law or do things they really ought not to, uh, they won't hold back. But, and I'm not saying they won't ever use the hostage um, phenomenon in the future. I certainly can't read their minds and I don't talk to Xi Jinping. But right. um, I, my sense is that that gets them an awful lot of negative repercussions, including from our allies, um, for what gain? Right. Uh, Gordon Holden, as always, thank you for your insight
0: on this. Thank you so much, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thank you. We had a listener calling. I mean, we had Gordon Holden, who is Professor Emeritus and Director of the, uh, of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Uh, and this is a fair question. A listener wanted to know how the China Institute at the U of A is funded. So I looked it up. And um, back when it was apparently, it's funded by the government of Alberta, essentially. It was, uh, it was an endowment that was given to set it up. Uh, the China Institute at the University of Alberta was established in the fall of 2005 with an endowment fund of $37 million from the government of Alberta, which was done through another assessment of an art collection they had. So uh, that's how that was done. Uh, I I spend a lot of time in little small businesses where I am right like you know I live downtown so I shop a lot in sort of independent places because that's what's around me and you can tell what a rough I mean it's been a tough go right those that especially those that had to close uh, for a long time trying to get back up to speed Uh, they've had a lot of small businesses now I've had to contend whether they be restaurants or other forms of business I've really had to contend with a lot more of a hybrid demand so perhaps they had a bricks and mortar place Uh, to begin with, and now the demand for online stuff has really grown. And and business hasn't been easy. I was reading a Canadian Federation of Independent Business uh, survey report last week, and it said that 60% of small businesses report carrying debts directly related to the pandemic um, and that 17% of owners were still considering permanent closing, citing the lasting damage of the COVID-19 crisis to their bottom line. It's not the case for all businesses, of course. Some are doing well. Some found their way through. Some have their niche. Uh, But even those that are doing better or at least keeping their head above water right now, uh, small business owners are are working really long hours. Now, that has been the case for a long time, but it is especially the case now just to keep everything going. You know, recruitment and retention of staff is tough these days. Supply chain issues are, are getting better, but haven't been completely ironed out and uh, there's a lot of competition obviously with bigger uh chains depending on what it is that you're what kind of business you're in and uh and again that hybrid thing where you know people expect to get instant service online and they expect to get the same kind of service when they walk in the door uh that is all the case for my next guest uh, if you walk in to the pet grocery store in alliston ontario which is just a little bit north of toronto near barry On any given day, the odds are that you'll find owner Jennifer Newark there, Uh, from behind the cash uh, to back in the office on the website, administrative duties, communicating with clients and suppliers. Uh, Her shift often begins very early in the morning and ends very late at night. And we wanted to know more about what it's like just to hear from someone out there trying to navigate their way through these new times as a small business owner. So Jen Newark, uh, owner of Pet Grocer, joins me now. Jen, thanks
1: for your time. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks for having us on. On the
0: front lines of small business owners for the in this country, it's been a really tough stretch here. And I was, you know, there was a story about you last week, and it and it, uh, it to me it really encapsulated all the challenges. But tell me about when did you open Pet Grocer, and what was your hopes for it when you opened the doors?
1: Uh, we opened in two thousand and seventeen for our retail location, and our original goals were basically to help our small community to have access to all the things that you would normally have in a larger community without having to drive out of town everything for us if you wanted something that was larger you were driving a half an hour to get anywhere to get anything uh, right. this was pre-covid so there was no great delivery services there was no big push for online shopping uh so you really had to go and work to get these things so our goal was to really bring good health good longevity lots of healthy new options that you would normally find in a big city to our small community
0: Right. I, and I suspect there'd be a lot of demand for, for it too, because if I'm, you know, I've been, I was saying I've been to Alliston, a lot of pet owners, if I remember correctly, lots of dog barking yeah. dogs when you're walked up the street.
1: <laughs> it's funny because I remember when I first opened the store, my dad sitting me down and saying, are you sure about this? And I'm like, trust me, there is a large community of people who love their pets. And we are emotionally uh, invested and we're passionate about our pets as our family members. And we want to do by, the best by them. So... Yeah. And you you carry
0: specialty products, right? This is sort of different from what you might get at your average pet store.
1: Yes, we are certainly not the average. People actually drive all over Ontario to come and see us. Uh, So we're more of a destination and we consult with veterinarians throughout the world. Um, We've had clients in Slovenia, lots of people in the United States. So we are certainly not your average pet store. We're more of the holistic health food store and nutrition experts for sure.
0: Yeah, and and this demands. I mean, when you first opened, I think everyone who opens a small business understands that for the first while, at least, it's going to be twenty four seven. If there if there were more hours in the day, I suspect you'd have to work those too. But uh, that, that's kind of. I mean, there's been some challenges clearly with the pandemic and so on. But here we are, six years later, and it's still a real, a real full time, full life job for you.
1: There's two ways to look at it. One is I am a very driven entrepreneur and I want to see the successes happen. And two is that the world changed um, in the middle of it all. And the demands in order to be able to compete with the chain stores and the giants, I wanna be really good at what I'm doing and serve as many clients as I can. and, And I have a hard time saying no to people who I know I can help. But then there's also the flip side that we still have a business. I still have to pay to keep the lights on there and pay salaries. And, you know, we we went to extra expenses to make sure we have really talented staff. So I now pay for benefits for my staff. I don't know any small business, that, at least locally, who pays for benefits for their staff. You know, we really try. So those expenses have to be made up through sales and we have to still do the sales. So we have to be
0: there. Yeah, and I guess in this case you're trying to continue to grow the business, and as we well know from many many small business owners across this country, recruiting and retaining staff is difficult. So you want to tr- you want to build a great team and then keep them.
1: Yes, and you really have to make sure. I I grew up in restaurants, and uh, my husband grew up in restaurants, and we both worked them for many years. And it's certainly a lifestyle of its own. <laughs> as so, anyone you, can tell you. so
0: you understand, yeah, you know what I you know far right. better than I do what I'm talking about. Yes, indeed.
1: Right, like it's a lot of work, and it's it's a, a lifetime of work, and it's a daily. Your day is just encompassed with it. And one of the things I remember taking away from that is that I didn't want to have my staff. Now I want they're really intelligent, highly educated. We pay for all of their training and certifications. I don't want them to burn out. It's an emotional job. You know, we all really truly care about our clients and their pets and how they're feeling and how their pets are doing. And I don't want them to burn out. So we do short shifts. I have a little bit more energy than the average person so I do a little bit more than the average in my hours but staff come to me and say "No, I want this program or I want to do this course and I pay for those courses we have books in the store we work on mindfulness and wellness stuff you know we have benefits we're hoping to do RSP matching in the future like there's a lot of stuff to, tr- to retain these really qualified amazing people that we work with
0: it sounds like a great place to work but what ends up happening, I gather, and this is true of many small business owners, is that when there is a gap to fill, you fill it. So I was reading that it was the Canadian Federation of Independent Business had a report out last week that said the extra hours worked by owners really amounts to an eighth day of work for many. So you're putting in sort of eight full work days in a seven day week.
1: It's funny. I remember reading that too, And I'm one of the people who did the survey, which is Oh, how, did you? Okay. That's, that's how, how they that kind of, how Global yeah. News found us, yeah. yeah. And- I remember the reading in the report that they said the average small business owner works 59 hours a week. And I laughed because I'm closer to 90 hours a week
0: Right, as my 50, legit 59 hours. Would be, 59 would be a quiet week. It
1: would be a, would be a break for me. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yeah, I feel bad for the people who are doing those hours, but it's just a different lifestyle and you get used to it. Your expectations of what your time off looks like is different, right? So you do what you have to do to make sure that you reach that level of success. You have to do that if you're going to compete with online giants today.
0: You must sacrifice. Again, you know, we talk about work-life balance for your employees and and wanting them not to burn out. But in your case, you must must have to watch out for all those same things too. Just because you own doesn't mean you have to carry that much extra weight, right? It it becomes a difficult balance, I suspect.
1: It's a challenge and it's one that I'm constantly reevaluating. My husband has just not long ago said to me, it's time for you to maybe take a look at trying to offload some more of the duties so that you're not required to do all of those hours. And I, I truly want to. I, I mean, we're, we're trying to outsource a lot of the tasks that maybe I don't have to have my hands as a part of it. But the challenge then becomes I have to train them and I have to pay them. And we're still at that growth curve where you know, maybe we need just a little bit more money before I can afford to hire another staff member to do that next task.
0: Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to to make that transition too, right when you're growing a business from from opening the front doors by yourself to hiring to bringing people on to growing to adapting. One of the hardest things to do is to sort of let go a little bit, I think.
1: That's true. That's true. I was accused by, in a kind way, uh, one of the guys who services our freezers, he's a great guy, uh, that I had CDO, which is CDO. the alphabetical <laughs> version of OCD. So I said, that's true. Maybe I do like to control things a lot. And in a sense, a lot of small business owners, you have to, you have to be able to be aware of what's going on and um, really multitask in a quality way in order to make sure you have all those aspects of your business operating at the level they need to for success.
0: Jen Newark is with us. She's owner of Pet Grocer at Alliston, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto, uh, sort of south of, of Barry, if you're trying to situate it. Um, and we're talking about, you know, owning a small business these days and what kind of hours you have to put in to make it work, you know, the difficulties of, of retaining and finding good staff and what you have to do to keep them. Jen, when you look at, I mean, just for you, what does an average work week look like? I mean, you must put in, you must work in the morning before you get get to the store. You must work afterwards. You must be there a lot.
1: Uh, well, it's an interesting mix. So for the previous number of years, I did do a lot of time in the store. And of course, at home, you know, I'm usually texting clients from seven in the morning until midnight, sometimes later, um, depends when I finally go to bed. But I, I do literally work from the minute I wake up until the time I go to sleep and then find little pieces of time throughout the day to have those breaks Uh, Lately, it has been less of me in the store uh, because I do a lot of consultations, Mm -hmm. which are done remotely. So I spend a lot more time trying to do the service side of the business rather than the physical sales in the store. So managing the staff and we've got a number of great staff who are, are manning the shop for us.
0: Could anything more be done uh, and And this is by every level of government, could any more be done out there, recognizing that that it's entrepreneurs like yourself that are many in many ways the backbone of the economy, right? Is there any more that could be done to help you? Is it too much red tape? Is it too many loophole or too many things to hoops to jump through? What could it be that would help that would help small business owners such as yourself take a bit of that extra burden off?
1: One of the things that I found really helpful during the uh, the COVID years, there was a little period of time in between there where some employers got 10% off of our payroll taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that when you're paying somebody, let's say an hourly wage, um, and you take off their taxes, the employer has to match that. So I don't just take off the pa- taxes and pass it on. I also have to match that tax and then pay that to the government. And a lot of the employees don't even realize this. And that's a I big... Didn't that. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So it's yeah, a big we amount. Yeah, so yeah. you pay 1.4% of the CPP and EI. And we were allowed to take 10% of that off. And that amount enabled me to hire another person. Like it made the difference between me being able to hire another person, which is amazing. I say no to work all the time. I would like to take on more clients, but I physically don't have the hours to do it when I'm also doing the administration. I'm also doing the management. So if we had something like that, when we were doing bank fees, for example, I just finished negotiating with my bank to say, <laughs> right. please let me do e-transfers that are more than $3,000 a day because sometimes I have to pay more than that to one vendor bill. Um, so we finally got that. But they said they don't even look at businesses who have less than $5 million in revenue. Well, I'm still really? less than $5 million in revenue. And that's that's the threshold for small business. So
0: it's so low. I mean, if you're, if you're making an order, especially with specialty products, if you're making it, you probably want to get more order quite a bit at one time. And yeah, that would be a real barrier
1: yeah well, and i I in my mind that that number of that whole five million dollar revenue business being the first time they start to actually look at you and give you consideration, that really surprised me because what about the businesses they 're doing one million in revenue you know we 've got a good number of staff i 'm supporting people in my community i 'm doing lots of uh, charitable work within our community. What about our businesses and and is the government maybe there's an opportunity to say, let's look at these micro businesses. If people who are under a million dollars, or million dollars and under kind of thing, can we do something to help them keep, you know, I've got seven staff. That's a significant portion of people that to is. employ, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, adapting right to the changing face of, of, of entrepreneurship to some extent, or at least trying to adapt things that have become, uh, you know, I can see why banks are big. Are, are set limits like that, but at the same time, it'd be nice if, if, uh, there was more flexibility there. Advice Mm -hmm. to others out there. I mean, clearly for you, it's a, it's a, it's a labor of love in many ways, clearly. Uh, but it, but it's labor, it's labor.
1: It is, it is. And it's not certainly a lifestyle that, I would recommend to most people. (laughs) And I do know a lot of other people, honestly, who do work really hard and work long hours. But I think there is certainly a quality of life, like you mentioned, where you need to stop and consider. And my recommendation would be to get as much assistance as you can afford and outsource as much of the jobs as you can do and perhaps remove some of that uh, need for control and let people do other specialty jobs within your organization that you can walk away from.
0: And in the case of, of, of for you, you're still growing, right? I mean, the business has been a success and you continue to make it so.
1: Yes. Well, we've been really um, enjoying a lot of successes lately and it's been exciting for us. We were recognized um, by our industry body Uh, twice. We had received rewards for Eastern Canada. So that was kind of exciting for a micro-independent. And we hope to continue to help enough people that we generate that conversation um, both nationally and internationally.
0: Well, Jen, uh, thank you so much for taking, I know how valuable your time is. Thanks so much for taking <laughs> a, bit, a bit out of it to talk to me today. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. It's been our pleasure. We've been sort of on a business theme
0: this half hour. Um, and in the last half hour, we met Jen Newark, an independent, you know, a small business owner uh, near Barry, Ontario. This is a different, this is a different, uh, this gentleman's an Ancaster. That's where his Businesses based, uh, Putnam and uh, Putman Investments rather, but he has a you know he has a different approach to all this. So you may recognize the name Doug Putman uh, mainly because he's been associated with the resurrection of some of those brands that we many of us would have known over the years: Sunrise Records, Toys R Us, um, David's Tea locations, which become which became tea kettles. HMV in the UK uh, has has really flourished of late thanks to a Canadian. Believe it or not. Now, his name is not out there a lot because he kind of, you know, it's it's a privately held company. It's a family owned business. They started off in the toy business. That's how he sort of got involved with Sunrise Records and Toys R Us. He knew that supply chain. Um, he knew how it all worked. And, and it's been a real success story uh, overall. But now he's turned his eyes to something that you may have noticed disappear from the landscape. There was a Bed Bath & Beyond, not too, too far from where I live, up near sort of a shopping mall area. And we were there uh, as it was going out of business, which is always sort of, I mean, you go there because you think, oh, maybe there'll be a few deals, but really all you do is go in there and realize it's kind of a downer that they're gone, right? So I realized that uh, they went bankrupt in the States and in here there were some real issues with the company near the end there, although they had been hugely successful not that long ago. And, Uh, Doug Putman has seen in that an opportunity. He's seen an opportunity in not all of the locations they left behind, but uh, but a number of them. Uh, 21 for now, I think it's going to climb to more. Later, and he's going to go in there with a, with a similar concept and a new name called Rooms and Spaces. But really, the idea—what I found really interesting about his story—and it's not just this new venture, uh, which will see him uh, his company take over about twenty-one of those Bed Bath and Beyond spaces, including at places like the West Edmonton Mall in Langley, out here in um, out here in Victoria, way out way out down east in St. John's, Diefenland, uh, and you know lots of places in between. But it was more his belief in the power of bricks and mortar retail. Because you hear so many doomsayers these days when they talk about it, and we have evidence of it. You see companies like Nordstrom leave and so on, pack up their Canadian operations and take off. That it was really interesting, I thought, thought, that someone out there looks at these businesses and thinks, you know, I think this one's going to work. I think this one is is redeemable. I think these spaces could still be viable, even in the same business that they once held, just with a different name and a bit of a different take on things. Um, so, Again, you know, uh, 21 retail locations for Bed Bath & Beyond uh, and Bye Bye Baby, and they will soon become these rooms and spaces locations. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about that and about uh, just him in general and, and why he has this belief in, in retail and how he's found success in it. And so we uh, we called him up and said, do you want to talk about you want to talk about your new venture? And, of course, he agreed, which is great. Doug Putman of Putman Investments joins me now. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I often see your name associated with with organ with you know retailers that are unloved. I think it's an interesting way way of putting it because it seems like they're not as much unloved as maybe badly managed. I'm not sure, but but tell me a bit about uh, what was attractive to you with these Bed Bath and Beyond spaces. I guess 21 of them for this new company you're going to open called Rooms and Spaces.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, we like the the market space. We thought uh, Bed Bath hit a certain uh, area for Canadian consumers. The, the home furnishing space. And and we think that the customer is going to continue to spend. So with them leaving the market, it just felt like there was this good opportunity for us to do something. And so we kind of started looking into it. And, and the more we looked into it, the more we, we liked the space and, and thought we need to get involved in it. So
0: 21, right? 21, because uh, there were several more, I, I gather, Bed Bath and Beyond locations across the country, but you're starting with 21 for now.
2: Yeah. So there were, I think for around 55, when all said and done, I think we're going to be closer to 30. That's kind of the number I think we're going to get to uh, very quickly. And then, you know, hopefully uh, into the next year, into 2024, we can get back up to 50.
0: What's the big challenge with it? With because I, I realize that uh, when I look back at all the different organizations you've been involved with, whether it's Sunrise Records and then HMV, um, Tea Kettle, which was David's Tea, Toys R Us. They're, they're, I mean, maybe not the tea one, but they're, they're companies that you sort of had, at least Sunrise and Toys R Us. You had a bit of hands-on experience with them. Did you have much hands-on experience with Bed Bath & Beyond beforehand, or is it just something you now understand how this, how this system works, supply, getting supply chains working, making sure you have the right products on the shelf that allows you to take on a different kind of venture?
2: Yeah, I I think that's basically it. I think a good retailer is a good retailer. I think when we looked at this, you know, we know supply chain really well. We know working with vendors well. And so it's just a different product. But, you know, the premise behind a, a retail business is is pretty much the same, regardless of the category. So, you know, we feel pretty comfortable getting in this. And like I said, the more time we spent, you know, talking with vendors and talking with landlords and you know, future employees. We just felt like we could put together a great team and, and have uh, uh, another retail chain that would do well.
0: Because I gather part of the way you approach this is that, is that you come in and it's very intense at first, but you do try to rely on the existing infrastructure within the company that are, you know, the one that's gone away. Some of the employees, some of the people who were there. And you're doing the same thing with this one as well. These are people who, who already know the business. Just it was, you'll try and reshape a better model around them.
2: Yeah, I, I think in some cases, we do replace management. Uh, and in other cases, we we try and kind of work with them. It really depends. In this scenario, management wasn't the problem um, because the US made a lot of the decisions and, and told Canada what to do. So I think from our standpoint in meeting with a bunch of the, the leadership team in Canada, we felt like their ideas were right. They just weren't able to execute them because they couldn't get approval on it. So uh, I think we felt really good about bringing them into the mix and, and letting them do it. But yeah, I think you're pretty much bang on. We we're very involved in the beginning. And then as we get confident uh, and trust the team, we slowly back away from it and, and let them do their thing.
0: You're very close to your family when it comes to these decisions. What was their reaction? I know you float these past people and everyone has their kind of their role in terms of, you know, skepticism, levels of skepticism. What was the what was the family reaction to this idea?
2: Yeah, I think everyone was pretty excited. I mean, okay. uh, I think in the end, most of the time, by the time I'm I'm bringing it up to the family, saying, "Hey, I think we should do this," it's it's been well vetted, and we very rarely kind of go back. But in general, I think the families you know, pretty supportive of almost everything once it's got to, to this stage. Like me, they like the space. They think it's a really interesting space, but questions are always more, is it worth the time? You have limited time. So you got to be sure that if you're going to do something that it's it's going to make sense time-wise. And I think for this one, you know, we believe we can get this back to the Bed Bath Glory days in in Canada. So I think, you know, there's a lot of upside here.
0: Is it going to be a different retail experience than than Bed Bath and Beyond, or will it be something fairly familiar to those who spent time in those stores?
2: In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. You know, I think Bed Bath kind of got down this road of like really high prices, but then you got a coupon to get the discount. Right. It's just not the kind of business model I believe in. I think doing a model like that makes your customer feel like day in, day out, they're, they're getting ripped off. But then when they get the coupon, they're getting the right price that it should have been. So I think, you know, we're gonna distance ourselves from that you know we want to make sure we have stock and we want to have brands uh, and i think again there's where bed bath kind of decided that they they felt private label was better where we think you know brands are better so i think there's a few meaningful ways that we're going to be different but you know look ultimately from uh, yeah different colors different feel in the stores but yeah of course we're going to be carrying towels and and linens and things like that so similar product mix but what people loved about bed bath we'll we'll have and hopefully we're we're taking away those Pain points, you know, people didn't enjoy about Bed Bath.
0: Yeah, it felt even just as a customer that that they that something went wrong. I mean, I, I know the pandemic was tough on absolutely everybody when it came to supply chains but it felt like something went wrong for them where suddenly what what had been a pretty decent model started to started to show some real cracks near the end there and i don't think anyone was yep. surprised when things started to to go to go to go south a little bit no pun intended because you mentioned and we've seen it a lot with american companies trying to build in canada it can be tough sometimes and they make the wrong decisions we i'm thinking of nordstrom recently for instance yep.
2: You know, it's funny. I mean, they obviously made the wrong decisions on the U.S. business since they're in bankruptcy protection there as well. But, you know, not too long ago, this is a company that was making a billion dollars in profit. So, you know, it shows you that if you can get this model right, that, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. And if you get it wrong, you can lose an awful lot of money. So I think for us, it's just paying attention. You know, retail is definitely detail. And so you've got to have all these things going in the right direction. And I think we feel good that we can make that happen.
0: How did you start off in this? How how did the idea of, of going and sort of resurrecting, or maybe not resurrecting, but sort of reviving names and 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 locations that had fallen on hard times? Because it's such an interesting business model, and and you can see why it might be fraught. But in but you've been you've had a lot of success at it.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, our number one way to do business with someone is always we'd rather acquire the company. That that's always number one. So we're always going to try and acquire a company. Free bankruptcy. Once it's gone into bankruptcy, it becomes a little bit dicier for a whole host of reasons. You know, one gift cards. You know, a lot of times while they're in bankruptcy, those aren't aren't accepted, and so you know the name gets a bit tarnished. Obviously, with bankruptcy the name definitely gets tarnished as well. First and foremost, we're always going to try and acquire a company before it comes to bankruptcy. Uh, when that fails and they're in bankruptcy, you know, in a lot of cases, we'll still try and come up with a deal, but. Um, In some cases, it just doesn't work. And so then you're left with the last option, which is Either you want to be in the space or you don't. And if you don't, then it's easy. You just don't you don't do anything. But if you do, it, it's definitely a, a much more challenging way to go about it because you need to talk to every landlord. You need to talk to all the suppliers, make sure everybody's on side and going to support you the way that you feel you need to be supported. Got to deal with all the ex-employees and make sure you can come up with a team that's going to make sense and that can do what you want. So it's a painful process. It's the hardest way to do it. Uh, We've done it a few times in the past. It's it's definitely not our preferred way. In this example, it actually worked out better. I think I like our name better. I think I like where the team is going better. I think we got a great team. We got fantastic support from landlords and vendors. It's a bit more painful. I I think overall, we're going to be a lot happier, you know, fast forward a year from now that we did it this way.
0: Doug Putman of Putman Investments is with us this half hour talking about uh, resurrecting or at least moving into about 21 or more Bed Bath & Beyond locations right across the country from as far east as St. John's to as far west as Victoria. Um, and a new concept called Rooms and Spaces, which will be familiar to Bed Bath & Beyond, but is sort of trying to keep what was great about those those locations and build on that. Uh, Doug, when I look at your history, I mean, a lot of people have been very down on retail, obviously, you know, the bricks and mortar retail experience over the past uh, decade or so. But you've thrived in it. What, what is it about retail that you think still bricks and mortar retail that still really makes sense?
2: When the pandemic happened, pre-pandemic, you know, it was always okay. Well, brick and mortar is going to go away. Fast forward to the pandemic, and then it was, you know, well, it's certainly going to go away now. But I think kind of what the pandemic showed everyone is that the the world's a pretty boring place if you have to do everything online. And so I think in in some places, online makes a lot of sense and is great. Maybe with your groceries, maybe buying your kitty litter or this or that. Great, saves me from doing it. But then stuff that we enjoy, uh, whether that's buying a piece of vinyl, whether that's getting something for our house, a toy for the kids, I think there's an experience there that we all enjoy. And so I think if you look at kind of the retail banners that that we own, uh, most of them are an enjoyable experience. Taking your kids to Toys R Us and and having a great half-hour hour with them running through a store. For this, it's that you're shopping for you know your favorite place in the world, your home, your cottage, your dorm, whatever it is. So I think there's a lot of value in being able to come in and really go through touch and feel. But yeah, we, we're going to have online presence as well. Every retail chain we own sells online and has mm-hmm. a great online business. But I think the actual physical store certainly help the overall business.
0: And one of the things that's interesting about the way you approach these is that, uh, you know, I, I briefly worked in an organization that had a private equity department and they'll view, they're, 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 you know, it's not short term, but it's, it is short term to some extent. It's very in, turn it around, get out, sell it for a profit. You take a much longer view of these things. You realize that, resurrecting brands like these is 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 a long game. I mean it seems to be the only way to approach it, right? Because you need to get through those early years where things might be tumultuous.
2: I think when you're a private equity you have these limited times, you know, you need to get in and get out. I think for me, I don't buy anything that I don't want to own indefinitely. I'm not good at selling and uh, I feel a commitment to our employees. I feel a commitment to the business. And so, you know, if I'm lucky, my niece or my daughter takes over some of this, all of it, totally up to them. They're very four and five now. So a little too yeah. early <laughs> to say. Maybe um, Toys
0: R Us. Maybe Toys R yeah, Us. Yeah. But,
2: but, you know, I think when you have a super long-term view, I think it, it allows you to be Uh, a better business. I think when you're only looking at how do I turn this around and sell it in five years, I think you take a lot of shortcuts that may not be healthy for the long term. I think it also helps you with retention and employees. Like They like that they know they're working for someone who's going to keep this and that their hard work has a benefit. It's not just there to try and make as much money as I can and sell.
0: Especially these days, right? Where people, you know, everyone's having trouble recruiting and retaining employees.
2: Yeah. And I think we've been really lucky there again. I think People come and work for us because they enjoy the model that we have, right? I think, you know, Sunrise Records is a fun place if you're into music. Uh, I think Toys R Us is a great place if you're into, you know, seeing the joy of a kid walk into the store and just their eyes light up. When we look at this new home store, you know, Rooms and Spaces, I think we believe we're going to have people in there that are quite passionate about their home and decorating their home and the stuff that's in the home. So I I think what we own kind of lends itself to having a passion,
0: and uh, this is rolling out pretty quickly, isn't it? I mean, one always assumes it takes, I, I, I mean, I think people don't understand how long it takes to set a business up necessarily something that big, but what is the timeline for rooms and spaces? It's, uh, I was reading summer, which is around the corner.
2: Yeah. I think ultimately we hope to have this open uh, early July. It's, this is a, this is a sprint. This is a race for the finish line. I, I think the team's working like crazy to make it happen, but yeah, I think we feel good right now of where we're at. And, Hopefully, we we actually deliver on that early July.
0: And the best part of all this, the best part, of, or maybe the, the hardest and the best parts of, of doing of taking these brands and you know bringing them back up.
2: The best part is that turnaround piece. It's getting in there. It's getting them open. Once they're doing well and they're established, and the management team is doing great. It just doesn't become super interesting. That's right. just the way I'm wired. So once we've got it going and it's working, we're kind of looking for our next thing. It's kind of the thrill of the hunt for us.
0: Do you, do, do, do you have, I, I realize I was reading earlier that at one point, I think you cold called Prem about uh, at Fairfax about Toys R Us. I would suspect that more people call you these days, maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean, we certainly are getting more. We're, we're on the radar a bit more now. I still think if you look at the size of us, a company doing billions and billions in sales, you know, most companies doing that, everyone would would know us and, and think of us. But you know, we still miss out on opportunities. It's probably my number one frustration is on the one hand, I kind of enjoy being a little bit under the radar. On the other hand, I hate missing any kind of opportunity. Um, so I think we're in this mid-level. I think you know rooms and spaces helped. Obviously Toys R Us helped, HMV helped. Every deal we do gets us a bit more exposure. Um, so we're certainly getting more calls, uh, which is great to see because you know, we're always looking to invest and take on more things. But I think you know, in an ideal world, you'd love to see every deal. You know, We'll probably never be happy with the amount of calls. We'll always probably want more. But so far, it's been pretty good.
0: Yeah. I, well, good luck with this one. I like it. There's going to be one up the street from me. So I look forward to
4: seeing it. Doug, thank you so
2: much. Thank you. Have a great day.
4: The first overall selection in the 2023 NHL draft belongs to the Chicago Blackhawks. And there you go.
0: Now, normally that's a pretty big deal, right? You get to pick first, which means you get the best player in the draft generally, or at least who you think is. This year has been a little bit different. It's been one of those lead-ups to it that basically says... Uh, you know, there's one player that everyone wants. They're calling it the Connor Bedard sweepstakes. Now, this guy is a phenomenon. I don't know if you remember him from the World Junior Championships. I mean, he is just phenomenal. He lit up the Western Hockey League this year. His team didn't go far in the playoffs, uh, but he played. He was great. And so everyone knew that whoever landed the number one pick this year was going to land Connor Bedard. So there you go the Chicago Blackhawks got him. I mean, an original six-team that kind of tanked this year, uh, hoping for this to come up. But, I mean, in a big way, i mean, sure the NHL will be happy. This is a big-city, major-market franchise with a team with a real legacy, and now they've got the most coveted name, or at least we expect them to take, unless something goes very wrong in the next month or so. We expect uh, Conor de Bedard to be putting on that Hawks jersey uh, come June the 28th in Nashville. Well, joining us with more on This now is Adam Lascaris. He's a sports writer with Offside and the Daily Hive in Toronto and been a guest on the show before. Adam, thanks so much. Welcome back. I guess you must have been watching this tonight.
5: Yeah, no, I I definitely was watching it and there there definitely was a lot of conversation around around how things uh, unfolded tonight.
0: Yeah, I mean it was funny because they had Bill Daly who's the assistant commissioner in the most sterile looking room by himself holding up signs. I mean, there was nothing particularly uh, dramatic about what was going on, but what he what was being announced was was dramatic. I guess Anaheim went in with the chan- with the best chance overall of grabbing the top pick, but uh, lo and behold, there was Chicago. <laughs> there was Chicago. I guess it's good news for the league.
5: Um, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting one because I think, uh, one of the big things that kind of I saw afterwards, it seems like a lot of people were, you know, not too pleased that Chicago got it for a number of reasons. Obviously they had, um, uh, you know, years and years of success, uh, on the ice as, as a Stanley cup contender. And then they've had, you know, a number of, uh, struggles off the ice, you know, they've had uh, yes. issues with, uh, Kyle Beach's uh, handling of, of that sexual, uh, assault allegations against the former member of their coaching staff. And I think that along uh, a lot of things I saw were just people kind of tired of the Chicago Blackhawks, you know, hopping right back into the world of success. So it it is an interesting thing because, you know, Chicago is obviously a major market team and they're uh, you know, they've been an organization that's been very successful over the years. And, and, you know, Connor Bernard's a player that's going to step into the NHL and and step into that uh, organization. And I'm sure he'll be successful, but I think there was a lot of, you know, just people who, who weren't, you know, if, if he could have gone anywhere, they weren't all too happy that Bernard was heading to Chicago.
0: Yeah, they had some real issues with some off-off-eye uh, stuff and, and 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 sort of distinctly unapologetic about it all as well. I guess I meant more from the business sense. Like if you're Gary Batman, you're looking at this and thinking our star player is going to a major American market and that's exactly what we would want.
5: Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because uh, you know, Chicago is a team that kind of uh they were always there. They were dormant. They were, uh, I guess, they, they had issues over the years where they they didn't really um, tap into the Chicago market as much as they maybe could have. They were definitely a uh, a team that that had a fan base that wanted to cheer for them, and then then ultimately in the, the mid 2000s they were able to find it and you know grow into one of the NHL's biggest fan bases once again after kind of years and years of of not doing that. And I think they're definitely gonna you know see kind of regard, and I think everybody has seen kind of his... Uh, you know his performance in, in the junior level. He, he should be a star. You know, pretty much almost right away. You've seen with those you know players at the first overall pick level, Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, those types of players. They're they're able to just become pretty incredible from the moment they step onto the ice. So there will be there will be a, quite a start of market. I think just people are are curious about you know kind of uh, where he ended up.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was talking to people over the weekend about this, and they they would all say the fix will be in if he goes to Chicago. The fix is in if he goes to Chicago, right? Which I mean, everyone has their conspiracy theories, but it was. Uh... So you think he'll make an immediate impact? Like that's. I mean, I've I've watched a bit of him, watched the highlights. I mean, he's certainly full of talent. I mean, it's he's got an unbelievable amount of talent. He's not particularly big though.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think you've just kind of seen over the past. Uh... 20 or so years that kind of the way that little guys are perceived little guys can, can make an impact pretty quickly. Uh, You know, he's still 17 years old. That's a crazy thing to think about his birthdays in July. Right. So uh, there's, there's no reason why, uh, you know, a guy who's been able to excel at at every level, it's not like, you know, you're coming in on a rush and a, and a guy says, Oh, you know, you, you look slightly shorter than me. I guess you can't beat the pants off me. So he's, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think you look at the way that players like, uh, you know, Austin Matthews came to the league. He scored 40, 40 goals his first year in the league. I believe uh, McDavid was flirting with a, a point per game pace. And uh, you know, some guys like a player like Jack Hughes took a little bit longer to adapt, but um, yeah, there's so many guys that you can have that uh, pedigree that come into the league and, and they're just able to, to take it and, you know, just kind of be be impressive. They've been the best player on pretty much every team they've ever played on. And, um, you know, in Chicago, it's a, it's a place where they're going to give him big minutes, right? It's, that team's been decimated over the past year. As, as They kind of cleared their roster for, for the uh, possibility to do this sort of thing. So it's not like they're going to, you know, shelve him on the fourth line and, you know, forget about him or anything. They're going to give him pretty big minutes probably pretty right away. And, and he's going to have, you know, uh, work to do to, to – go up to the speed of the NHL game, but he's an incredibly talented player. And, you know, not too many players can score at 23 points, I believe it was, at the World Juniors. And and not too many players can can do the kinds of things he can do.
0: I was reading a uh, sort of a biography of, of him over the weekend. Um, he, he's, he has a really interesting story. I mean, you sort of think, okay, there aren't that many young hockey players who kind of grow up with parents, who, who sort of sacrifice everything to, to get them to the rink. His sister, I gather, is a really talented gymnast. And basically the parents and the dad still works out uh, in forestry a long way from Vancouver. Uh, and they've basically been those those sports parents who've just, you know, done the five-hour drives night in night out and, and really a tight-knit little tight-knit family who've worked really hard to make sure that their kids um, are both loved supported and have an opportunity at success there's something I mean I don't know the whole story but there was something about his background that really strikes it's it's really one of those stories you're like well it couldn't happen to a better sounding kid
5: yeah I mean I, I think it is everything that people seem to say about Bedard seems like he, you know he's got his uh, had uh, screwed on straight and you know he's been he's been taught well and, and all that sort of things um, I think the one thing that I, I read about him a few months ago his mom was doing an interview and she said that he's never had fast food before she said like <laughs> ah, he'll eat it one day I uh, just uh, you know he hasn't he hasn't gotten through it yet uh, you know we just hasn't been a thing that we've he's been interested in trying and he seems like he's obviously super hyper focused and you know how can you not be right when you when you hear about the guys that, that are at this level it's like yeah it's, you know, you have your natural talent and all that, but you're also on the ice probably seven days a week. You know, you're waking up early and you're working out hard and, you know, talent's uh, a super important part of it, but it's not like you just get your talent and then you, you know, you step on the ice and, and you suddenly know how to do all the proper skates and you, you know how to do your crossovers perfectly and you know how to make that pass, right? It, it takes a lot of, you know, effort and, and practice over the years to, to get to this skill level. And uh, yeah, he definitely seems like he's, uh, he seems like he's uh a pretty, pretty nice dude, you know,
0: sort of Yeah. Think. Chicago, the Blackhawks, they landed Connor. They, they're going to land Connor Bedard. As far as we know, they won the draft lottery today. They beat out Anaheim. had mm-hmm. uh, the best chance of drafting first, but instead it'll be the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Adam Lascaris is with a sports writer with the, with offside and daily hive Toronto. Um, Everyone in Montreal should be asleep. It's past midnight there. They're going to pick fifth, which isn't too, too bad. They are set sort of where they finish. So it's not – there's probably a few good picks left there. But honestly, I could hear the groans when Vancouver got picked 11th because everyone thought, oh, they had a rough season. And there they are in 11th. Is is that a disappointment, you think, for uh... (laughs) – it strikes me as a disappointment.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest disappointment that I saw from – you know the Canucks faithful uh, and people I know, kind of in that scene, are are just kind of like, why did the Canucks put themselves in in that situation? Because I think you know the way that the Canucks season folded out was very similar to a lot of other Canucks seasons, where it was pretty disappointing by October and then very disappointing by November and extremely disappointing in December. And you know Connor Bernard is a guy who was you know grew up a Canucks fan. He was he was uh, yeah. born in North Vancouver and. And the Canucks uh, seemed like they were kind of chasing a playoff spot for, you know, a a little while. And then, I think the Canucks season as a whole was was pretty embarrassing for for most people involved, right? They had to go through, uh, you know, firing Bruce Boudreau, who was a wildly popular coach. They had to go through, you know, so many arguments day in and day out about, you know, the chemistry and, and, you know, does this player hate this player and, you know, is this media member saying this thing and, you know, what's their owner done now and and all sorts of things. And and then you look and and you know you have one of the most electric prospects in years who, who grew up a Canucks fan and. And the Canucks, I believe, only had something like a 3.5% chance at, at landing him. And I, I know a lot of the Canucks fans are kind of saying, like, why couldn't we have just decided to be all in bad? Why were we just yeah. in bad and very annoying uh, to watch throughout the year?
0: Oh, it would have been great to see him. I mean, honestly, I mean, it would have been great to see him in a Canucks jersey. I mean, geez, that would have been something special. Uh, I mean, we have a few minutes left here. I mean, honestly, what 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 is up? You know, when I was a kid, one of the first hockey cards I ever got, I remember it distinctly because I thought it was so wild, was that the New York Islanders had come back to beat the Pittsburgh Penguins in 1975 after being down 3-0 in their best of seven, and they were the first team to do so since the 42 Leafs had won the cup, doing the same. So I always remember that, how unlikely it is for a team to come back from three games down. What's up with the Leafs? They, they, look, they just look I mean, they look like they're not they look like they t- they packed it in after round one.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really weird thing where the, the Leafs, you know, had uh, they got over that hump that they hadn't yeah. been able to get over for, for nearly two decades. And um, I think the one stat that I saw that a lot of people were you know, cheering and chatting about last night was the Leafs have played nine, uh, nine playoff games now and they have one regulation win, which, you know, if that was in the middle of the season, you wouldn't feel too great about. It. And obviously in the second round of the playoffs, it, you know, people don't feel too great about that, seeing them down three, it, nothing. It is a really w- strange thing where you look and you say, hey, okay, a four game win streak in the regular season, you know, not that hard to imagine four game win streak in the playoffs and you're down three, nothing. It seems like a pretty, pretty steep road to overcome. So uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's really, it's it's always strange seeing, you know, the kind of quotes and everything that comes out of that after because, uh, you know, Florida's saying to every quote is such a cliche, you know, just gotta, uh, oh last one's the hardest to win, gotta close it out, and, and Toronto's <laughs> saying one ridiculous. game at a time, and there's nothing you could really do other than wait till Wednesday, right? It's, you can shake oh. up your lines, you can do a couple extra skates, you can do whatever, but... You just uh, you know it, it's it's a weird one because there's so many different ways that the series can play it now and and you know a very small percentage chance I, I believe it's somewhere around eight percent that the Leafs actually pull it out based on you know whatever analytics sites are putting out there it's, you know yeah, the, 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 on paper the Leafs are still maybe the better team but uh, but it doesn't really matter on paper when you're down three nothing so yeah uh, I I wish I had a good answer for you the, the, you know their their top players haven't been scoring in the second round and I think that's the biggest way that that you can point to it but. Um, yeah, it's going to be. Uh, I don't know. It's going to be a long of offseason unless they pull off a miracle. No
0: kidding. I always would love it if one of the one player came out after the game and said, "You know, that was awful. I'm polishing up the golf clubs." Like honestly, I'm just like I took one look at the team tonight, and you know, there were no more cliches for you. I'm just, I'm done. I'm I'm out of here. It never happens, right? It never happens. Um, and the Oilers. I mean, I started this all by saying. I mean, a few weeks back, we talked about my memories of 1993 and being in Montreal when the Canadians won that unexpected cup and beat the Kings, uh, even though the Penguins were by far the best team in the league that year. And then thinking, thinking to now, I mean, here we are 30 years later, Edmonton lost it. I mean, I still, I'm a big fan of the, of the Oilers. I think they have a great team. They, they're by no means done against Vegas, but man, you feel it slipping away a little bit again, 30 years later.
5: Yeah. It's, it's really strange, right. With the, uh, with the Oilers, I, I think they're, you know, not unlike, um, other teams in the league, but they're a team that has such a dynamic offense. And it's, it's weird when, uh, you know, players like Leon dry settle and Conrad David aren't on the score sheet and, you know, it's not, you can't blame them for, for, you know, not scoring every game, you know, you, even the best players in the league, if you score 40 goals, right. You only score every other game, but um, like dry settle has been on such a tear this postseason that, uh, you know, the, the, the Oilers just have this thing. I, I think a lot of teams have it where the energy just gets sucked out of the building. And, you know, for whatever reason, you're down a couple goals in the first period, and, and you kind of have that sense like, is it going to be one of those nights? And, and sometimes it's, it's one of those nights. But um, I think the Oilers, if they've shown us anything over the years, is that you know, one game to the other doesn't really have any bearing for that team whatsoever. You know, if they scored, if they won nine nothing next game, I don't think anybody. Yeah, would be they surprised, could be easily, but... easily. So, yeah, yeah. two one goals are on, come... the worst thing to place to be, but yeah.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, my fingers are still crossed for uh, well, at least for Edmonton. I don't, I think Toronto's done, but at least uh, for for Edmonton to come back and at least have keep the Canadian hope alive for at least another round. And there we are. I guess we'll see on on the twenty eighth. But uh, Connor Bedard to the Chicago Blackhawks. Adam, as always, thanks so much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, if the do come back and uh, win in seven, I guess you'll have me back after that one
3: too. <laughs>
5: I love Willie Nelson. It was one of those weird, you know, when you're young
0: and you don't really know a lot about music, you kind of know what your parents listen to, right? Or maybe you have older brothers or sisters. I didn't. So it was, uh, it was really what my parents listened to. And my parents had pretty, my dad had, you know, was in the music business. He had a lot of records and he had a pretty eclectic taste in music. And I remember when they got the album Stardust, I think it was in 78 um, that Willie Nelson had put out. And it was an album of standards with George on my mind and Stardust and many others on it. And there was just something about his voice. And then, of course, it's one of those albums that all my aunts and uncles also had. So you'd go to a party and it would be on or you'd go to like some sort of event during the day. It was relatively soft, right? So um, so I must have heard that record a million times. And I always really liked it. So I've always had a real soft spot for Willie Nelson. It's not, you know, not the kind of music I listen to all the time, but I've always had a real soft spot uh, for Willie Nelson. Before we get there, I just wanted to mention that uh, there's been some tweets. I was mentioning that one of my favorite restaurants in Montreal, uh, the Main, on St. Lawrence, uh, St. Laurent, Boulevard St. Laurent, as it's now called. But St. Lawrence, when I was a kid in the Main, is closed after nearly 50 years. It's a smoke bee place right across from Schwartz's. If you've ever been to Montreal and you've been to Schwartz's, if you turned and looked west, you'd be staring at the Main right across the street. And they serve the same food. So most of us who didn't want to wait in the line at Schwartz's would just walk across the street to the Main and eat there. And the food was great and it was just a little more, I wouldn't say it was authentic because the Schwartz's is great, but it just had a little slightly different vibe. It was sort of something that if you knew, you knew, right? If you knew, you knew that you could sit down there and have just as good a meal uh, without waiting in that long lineup with all those tourists from all around the world, which makes it, of course, Schwartz is a great institution, but uh, Terry DeMonte, who I grew up listening to, of course, who's always been one of the best in the biz was talking about. He's also a former Montrealer talking about the fact that, uh, that, um, the main was closing right and then uh donna hopper a name you might know was talking about another place that was another smoke meat place in montreal that was legendary uh, closer to downtown actually not too far from the mcgill campus called ben's that was right on the corner of de Maisonneuve and um you know i'm gonna forget the name I, i'm gonna say peel and it's not peel now i'm gonna forget what street it was on that's awful that's that's you know when you move away from a city and all of a sudden the street Streets get a little fuzzy to you. <clears throat> Donna says, things haven't been the same since Ben's went out of business. Best smoke meat anywhere. Used to love driving up to Montreal to eat at Ben's. But yeah, so many great restaurants and shops are closing. It changes the character of a city uh, when that happens. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess it's the nature of things. Things come, things go. But some of those ones that you grew up with, you know, you, when, they, when they leave, it really does feel like a little piece of you leaves the city that you were born in, especially if you don't live in your hometown anymore, as um, as is the case with me, right? It's been a while since I lived in Montreal, so uh, every time I go back, I notice another thing that I thought was still there is no longer there, and you feel a little piece of, you, a little piece of your history uh, kind of goes along with it. You know one person who's still around? Willie Nelson. <laughs> he had such an incredible, I don't know how much of that 90th birthday you caught, uh, that two-night concert at the Hollywood Bowl in LA. I mean, there was absolutely everyone there. I mean, Neil Young, George Strait, Snoop Dogg, Miranda Richardson, Chris Stapleton, on and on and on and on. Keith Richards was up there speaking of people who are ageless. Um, And here he is with Willie Nelson singing We Had It All.
6: I can hear
2: the wind blowing in my mind Just the way it used to
6: Through the Georgia pines, and you were there
1: when
6: I call. You and me. We have it
4: all. Yeah,
0: Willie Nelson. That was that was such an incredible event. I would just watch bits and pieces of it, but wow. And then last week he was it was announced that he'd be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for 2023, one of seven inductees alongside Keith Bush, Rage Against the Machine, Missy Elliott, Cheryl Crow. George Michael and the Spinners, the Spinners who I actually saw an incarnation of in Seattle not long ago. So it's been it was a good week that way. I mean, if you look back and I, I do for these interviews, obviously, you go back and look at someone's history. I mean, Willie Nelson's history is just unbelievable. I mean, since the 70s, especially, he's been sort of one of the most versatile enduring and influential talents in country music so the blurb goes but before that i mean he was a band leader a songwriter he's been a movie actor of course you've probably seen him in a few things honeysuckle rose i remember him from because of uh on the road again um He's had 20 number one country hits, 114 chart singles between 62 and 93. It's really been an unbelievable run for Willie Nelson. So I wanted to find out a bit more and who better to talk to than uh, Michael Gray. He's Vice President of Museum Services at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum in Nashville. Michael, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about the museum. I was looking down at uh, the inductees. Of course, it's a who's who, right? It's a who's who of, of country music, but so much, uh, so much, to, so much to see and so much to
4: to hear. I'd imagine. Oh yeah, I mean, there's this museum. There's just so much activity here. Of course, we have we have two floors of exhibits and two theaters where we're constantly doing, you know, public programming, songwriter sessions, panel discussions, musician spotlights. You know, we also um, run Historic RCA Studio B about a mile away, which is where people like Elvis and Charlie Pride and Dolly Parton recorded in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, oh, yeah, there's just, um, you know, we're constantly, you know, changing the exhibits and, and putting out books and albums and, oh, just, just. Tons of stuff happening here. Yeah. It's remarkable that
0: Nashville, when you think about it, I mean, as a Canadian, when you think about it, you associate certain kinds of music with certain cities. You know, there was chess records in Chicago and there was Motown in Detroit, and then everything moved to LA. But Nashville has held on through all this time as, this, as you know, the epicenter. Uh, not only, there are other places that do it too, but kind of the epicenter of country music.
4: Yeah, you know, that's right. You know, I mean, I, and I will so you know, and, and for all the right reasons, but I will say... You know, a lot of other music, interesting music has been recorded here and sometimes, sometimes the country music overshadows. Right. That. I mean, Nashville had like a thriving R and B scene here, pioneering R and B scene after World War II in the forties and fifties and sixties. And even t- today we have like a lot of, you know, rock, a lot of rock acts like. Jack White and the uh, Black Keys and the Kings of Leon are all here, you know. So. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's it's a who's who of stuff. I guess
0: it just has a music. There's music in those streets. I guess uh, yeah, it's, right. it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned it because I we 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 uh, re- we're talking about Willie Nelson turning ninety. I th- thought you know, wow, he's such a, he's such an icon. He spent some time in Nashville. They went back to Texas back in the day uh, as sort of a way to find himself. He's had such a fascinating career where does he stand amongst the greats that you have that you honor there
4: oh boy man he truly is one of the most you know just versatile enduring and influential talents in all of country music i mean his impact really cannot be overstated i mean you know as you mentioned he just turned 90 and he's like our elder statesman <laughs> of country music i mean he can sing it play it write it i mean he's just had so much influence in so many different ways over the decades i mean we really could talk all day about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah people do i mean because he
0: he starts out as perhaps not the most obvious future elder statesman of the genre right i mean he's uh when he begins he's sort of he's immersed in all kinds of different kinds of music which explains how versatile he is
4: yeah absolutely i mean you know, one of his, you know, many uncommon musical gifts has been his ability to assimilate and interpret many different musical styles. And 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 as you've kind of mentioned that when, you know, when he got his start in Nashville in the 60s, he was having success as a songwriter writing songs for other artists, you know, like Nightlife for Ray Price and, of course, Crazy for Patsy Cline, which right. has become one of the most few songs have endured the way that song has, you yeah. know. And so at at first he was having most of all the success really was as a songwriter. It wasn't until he moved back to Texas and settled in Austin in the 70s when he started really having a lot of um, much more success as an artist.
0: I, I suppose music changes, right? People's taste. What is, what is popular is, uh, it changes over time. And I was interested to read that the outlaw movement was something that he didn't always look this way and dress this way, that this was sort of something that started in the seventies with Waylon Jennings and so on it was kind of a, uh, you know, touching a bit on that southern rock counterculture thing that was happening.
4: But what, a, what, um, a, what a perfect fit for, uh, for, for Willie Nelson. Oh, that's right. Yeah, those those early photos of of Willie, like in his during his Nashville years in the '60s, he looks like an insurance salesman. You know, short yeah. hair, clean shaved, all suited up. You know, and he was trying to kind of do it the Nashville way. And then, you know, when he when he moved to Austin, you know, that was right when that music scene there was starting to flower, and he was a leading light there. You know, one thing about the outlaw movement is that he it helped give country artists a lot more creative freedom. It used to be that the uh, record labels and producers kind of were calling all the shots as far as which musicians would be on their records and which songs they would record and all that. And 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 with the outlaw movement, it was people like Willie and Whelan who kind of wanted, to, they wanted, they didn't want to be in the passenger seat. They wanted to be in the driver's seat and ended up getting a lot more creative freedom for the, for the artist. Doing so too, he also made country palatable to the rock crowd and he really brought like a lot of different people together i mean country fans rock fans hippies conservatives people with you know his his fourth of july picnics in texas became like a gathering place for diverse artists and like a cultural meeting grounds for people with different you know political philosophies you know and short hairs who like beer and long hairs who like pot and you know they're all yeah. coming together you know <laughs> i mean yeah. It's,
0: it's, it, it, I still find his story remarkable because it's not that he's, it's not that it's unlikely, but, but I think it would have been very hard to chart Willie Nelson's path if you'd met him in the sixties. And <laughs> it's, it strikes me that because he was such a talented guy that like, you know, like artists and many other, kinds of music in the in the 70s you know I'm thinking of like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder all decided they wanted to do their own thing and those who were particularly talented songwriters and performers like Willie found success and it sort of allowed them to build on that for the rest of their days and here we are it's 2023 and it feels like Willie's been with us forever now
4: I know I mean and 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 even at 90 I mean he just continues to record and perform with like the energy of somebody you know half his age I mean I'm I'm sure you've heard about the, his ninetieth, you know. I, I watched of, parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the Hollywood yeah. Bowl where he's up there with, again, you know, bringing diverse people together. Everybody from George Strait to Snoop Dogg. You know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Does it
0: does it help? I mean, I know it's the Country Music uh, Hall of Fame Museum, but does it help when country artists? Uh, I mean, there's so many similarities between country and every other form of music. I mean, especially these days, but even then, if you listen to any number of country songs done, you know, whether it's, you know, Rainy Night in Georgia could be a country song, right? Or was, you hear, there's so many similarities that sometimes the formatting, and of course we lost Gordon Lightfoot this week here in Canada. So we've been talking a lot about people being slotted, right? That there's, that artists really do benefit when
4: you don't pigeonhole them. And he's, he's a good, he's a good example of that. He's a perfect example of that. I'm really proud that this museum does well as we try to we really go to great lengths to show those connections between and, and look at how you know we, we have a very big umbrella approach to what country music is everything right. from the most traditional to the bluegrass to Americana to country rock and contemporary country, you know, the pop country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we embrace it all and 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 then we like to see how country music you know, interacts with other genres, whether it's R and B or rock. I mean, we've we've you know we've we've featured Gordon Lightfoot in our exhibits here, and and it crosses, and it obviously it crosses borders too. So when you look at uh,
0: what I find too interesting too is is that I think people outside the country who look inside the country music business, specifically Nashville, and I guess it's from stories from people like Dolly Parton and so on, that it was always very very conservative. There's a way of doing things; you need to do it this way, or it doesn't work. And I guess that's, I mean. Willie Nelson sort of swims against that current definitely
4: but maybe it's just a misconception. Uh you know but in the 60s that really was a real thing for right. Willie you know they they wanted him to look a certain way it was sort of like a little bit of an assembly line approach to 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 becoming a country star and making records and even though I mean he did have great success writing songs for for artists of that era you know, as as an artist himself, you know he was just more a little more quirky and is you know is identifiable that it is. You know, it it's certainly it, is during one really is. note. But you know he's you know he's saying his phrasing is slightly ahead uh, head or behind the beat, and you know and and he and he had a different way of doing things, and he wanted to record with his his, his own band, not the not the studio musicians that the producers were insisting that he use. He wanted to record the kinds of songs that he wanted it to record he didn't want the record label telling him which songs to record i mean as an artist his big breakthrough album redheaded stranger which came out in 75 even you know when he turned that into the record company they they literally thought it was just a demo tape like they thought <laughs> it was just like, (laughs) they're like, okay, when are you going to finish this? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't polished. Yeah. It wasn't that polished. I remember that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah.
0: And and he's done a lot on the social side too. I mean, I remember the first farm aid and what a big deal that was that side of his career has been really remarkable as well. I've found.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I mean with Willie. It's like almost where do you begin with? I mean, it's just, you could, I mean, uh, you know, every one of these things we're talking about, I mean, yeah, farm aid in itself is enough As a founding member of that organization is a would would almost be enough for any artist. Yet he's done all these other things too. (laughs) Yeah, along with another Canadian, Neil Young,
0: of course. Yeah. Do you do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite Willie Nelson song? I have one, but it's 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 very typical. You know, it's because it was the first one I heard, and I thought, who's that?
4: Yeah. Oh boy, I really love "Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground," Um, and 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 I love nightlife You know, sometimes I do think the cream rises to the top. You know. crazy geez how can you <laughs> yeah you
0: can't beat, that. Yeah, you well, can't well, what's beat yours? that well I always liked his version of always on my mind because I remember oh. we didn't have Willie Nelson in the house and all of a sudden there was this sort of strange voice emerging from the stereo of singing this beautiful song that of course wasn't his but this beautiful song always on my mind until this day I can't hear a version about of it without thinking of his version of it so I guess yeah. that makes his his the best
4: yeah, but that's one of his gifts. I mean, he 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 could take he could write song. He could write write new songs that were sort of sang in old ways, or he could take old songs and sing them in new ways. I mean, just have so many gifts, you know. And 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 you know, one thing I would add about his own songwriting too is that he 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 helped open the language and thematic possibilities of country music in the '60s. He ushered in a an era of like song poets of people like Chris Christopherson and Tom T. Hall and Jill Silverstein, people like that. Wow. Well, I mean you're right, we could talk about this all day. We'll leave it
0: there, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And don't forget, next time anyone's in Nashville go say hi to Michael. He's at the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum right downtown. Oh, please do. And
4: thank you very much. I enjoyed this.